Hello, and welcome to the Complex Care Journal Club podcast. My name is Christy, and I'm a pediatrician at Children's Hospital Colorado and your host for this episode. I am one of the course directors for this podcast series, where we seek to discuss emerging evidence in the care of children with medical complexity and its implications for practice. I am delighted to have Dr. Ram Ramgopal and Dr. Carolyn Foster from Ann and Robert H. Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago joining me today. They're the lead and senior authors of an article Children with Medical Complexity and Mental and Behavioral Disorders in the Emergency Department, published in Hospital Pediatrics in January 2023. Ram and Carolyn, thank you so much for being here. That's exciting. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So I'm going to first ask you a little bit about what inspired you to develop this study. In your study, you were looking at children with medical complexity and mental and behavioral health disorders who presented to the emergency department and their outcomes after that initial encounter in the ED. I would love to know a little bit more about how your team developed this project and what you were seeing clinically in your practice that made you want to study this further. Sure. So this is an interesting area that I think has been receiving more attention in the last few years. There's a growing recognition that children with medical complexity are presenting more frequently into the hospital for a variety of issues, both mental and behavioral health related and not related to those problems. And that these patients, while accounting for about 5% of ED utilization or ED encounters, represent a disproportionate size with respect to their utilization of healthcare resources, including investigations, length of stay in the hospital, and hospitalization. So this is an area of focus that's become more and more widely investigated in the last few years. I'm a provider in the emergency department, and we typically see patients with mental and behavioral health disorders in our department fairly frequently. And we generally find that patients with medical complexity have different types of problems compared to those who don't have medical complexity. You know, patients who don't have medical complexity will typically have issues related to suicidality and depression, whereas patients with medical complexity will have issues with their behavior, with self-destructive behavior, with injurious behavior to other people that are quite different to manage. The other thing I was going to add was when we were first discussing this paper, it was after the pandemic had really highlighted the increase in mental health disorders generally. And I'm a primary care physician, also do complex patient care, and had appreciated that there could be a tendency in complex care medicine where we forget about the mental health disorders. I think there's a huge focus on utilization and device problems and care coordination. But I was really appreciating that sometimes there's an assumption that if you of a child medical complexity, they're not also dealing with mental health behavior issues. I do think that the two patterns that Ron described of there's your healthy kid with depression and anxiety, and then there's kids with medical complexity. We weren't really sure across a larger population if that pattern held true. And so we were interested in, in knowing if there are actually more of a mix than people appreciate. And I think Ron had some hypotheses about outcomes that might be happening because of the shortage of beds that were happening during the pandemic. I don't know, Ram, if you want to explain a little bit more about what we knew about shortages of beds and boarding, because I felt like that was part of what was driving our question and particularly our outcome. Logistically speaking, I think the the two sort of flavors of mental health disorders we see in the emergency department stratified by the presence of medical complexity are handled quite differently. The child who has suicidal ideation, there is an infrastructure in place to handle those sorts of problems, and they're generally more frequent, so the infrastructure is fairly well-developed. I think there's good criticisms that can be made that it's not as well-developed as it should be, but at least it exists, where there's places for those patients to go to get definitive psychiatric care from the emergency department. In contrast, patients with medical complexity 
complexity, have concomitant medical problems. They might be technology dependent. They might not be technology dependent. Their type of problems are substantially different. As I mentioned before, oftentimes related to autism spectrum disorder or self-destructive behaviors that the current medical system is really not well suited for. So in the ED setting, we're sometimes stuck trying to figure out what the best place is to take care of these patients, knowing fully well that it should not be the emergency department. As a result, a large proportion of these patients are admitted to the local children's hospital where we work, where the setup for mental health services may be suboptimal, even though the way to handle medical issues is probably better. So everything is sort of a compromise when you're taking care of these patients, and it really just highlights how suboptimal the care system is for them. So what did you find out with your study? So this study, I think one thing that is kind of fun with this study is that it's a two-in-one sort of package. So we looked at two different data sources. One is the very commonly used pediatric health information system, which I'm sure a lot of the audience might be familiar with. It's an administrative data set, which is comprised of more than 40 children's hospitals in the United States. The hospitals that are involved in the FIS network are spread throughout the United States geographically. They're typically tertiary or quaternary care children's hospitals, and they're generally well-resourced, and they will generally take care of the sickest kids in their community. So that is one sampling of children. And then the other um, data source we looked at was a statewide data set called the CompData data set, which looked at nearly all non-federal hospitals within the state of Illinois. And federal hospitals really means VAs, which generally don't see much children anyway. So it's fairly geographically comprehensive. And I think there's a strong acknowledgement that the majority of patients who present to the emergency department do not go to their local children's hospital, they go to their local community hospital. And the children's hospitals only see about 5% of kids nationally in the ED setting. So we wanted to look at both data sources. And so it's sort of a two-in-one paper, but there's a lot of similarities with the findings that we got from both of those different data sources. Among each, the number of patients with medical complexity who had a concomitant mental or behavioral comorbidity was quite low. It was less than 1%. It was 0.7% of children who presented to a children's hospital in the FIS data set and 0.2% of patients who presented to the statewide data set in Illinois. But the resource utilization of these patients was substantially higher than patients who only had one of those problems. Specifically, 80% of children in the FIS data set were either admitted to the hospital or transferred to another institution, and 62% in the comp data data set were admitted or transferred to another institution. And those numbers are substantially higher than the numbers of admitted or transferred patients among patients who only had a medical complexity issue without a psychiatric comorbidity or who had a psychiatric issue without a medical comorbidity. I think Ram highlighted that really well and summarized a very complex paper very well. I think one of the ways I was big picture thinking about it is we kind of demonstrate that they're additive challenges, right? And I think what Ram was describing was the system has been set up for either or. Either you have a medical need, and then you get a medical bed with the oxygen and SAT probe, or you have a mental health bed, you have a psychiatric bed that takes all those things out of the room because we're worried about self-injurious behavior. And I think what we've exposed here is that there is a population admittedly small, but a population that's experiencing the need for potentially both environments. And one of the reasons I think it might be helpful, Ram, do you want to explain why we did a composite measure? Because I actually think your decision to do a composite transfer admission measure actually exposes some of the structural issues itself. Yeah, absolutely. So our primary outcome for the study was a composite measure, which was admission and or transfer to another hospital. We did that for a couple of reasons. A lot of patients with mental health disorders do not receive their definitive care in the hospital or in the ED that they initially went to, but they're transferred to another site of care. So in that sense, considering transfer as sort of equivalent to admission, as in the physicians taking care of you needed to sort of send you up to a higher level of care was sort of equivalent to them admitting you to the same hospital. However, there is a big split that we appreciated 
did among patients who had the overlapping medical complexity and mental and behavioral health disorders compared to those patients who had one or the other, where nearly all of the patients who met this outcome criteria among those with the overlap were admitted, it was 98.8% versus if you have only a mental health disorder, that number decreased to about 85%. So still high, but substantially lower. And then the number of patients who had medical complexity who were transferred was quite low, it was 7%. So there is sort of a split with how these patients are handled. And generally speaking, if you have medical complexity, you tend to be admitted to that hospital rather than transferred somewhere else. Whereas if you have only a psychiatric issue, then your chances of being transferred are substantially higher. And one of the ways I was thinking about it, I don't know if you agree, Ram, is that it's kind of like the medical needs or the medical bed trumps your psychiatric care. And I think one of the questions that we discuss is for future work and understanding the implications of that and whether children with complex medical needs are getting the adequate psychiatric care because of that, because of those structural reasons, would be some of the next work that would be important. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think ultimately, when push comes to shove, the hospital has to make a decision about what to do. And if they're not able to get an appropriate site of care elsewhere, the best compromise is we'll admit this patient to our hospital. So at least we can meet their medical needs and try to address the psychiatric needs as best as we can. So that's sort of the best compromise they can make. But it's probably not the optimal solution in many situations. It probably depends on the specific resources available at your specific hospital as to whether or not they're able to meet those mental health needs. And so based on your findings, what do you think the implications for clinical practice are? Specifically, what do you recommend for members of interprofessional care teams for children with complexity based on this? So one part of the results that we didn't touch on that might be worth highlighting is the table two, where we talk about the characteristics of those who did have overlapping need. And I think it could be worth noting that there was a good spread of different diagnoses amongst those. And while we often have in our minds autism and developmental disability disruptive behaviors, which were certainly there, the actual two most common were still anxiety and depression. And while the focus of the paper was primarily on how these overlap, I think it's important to highlight that even children with medical complexity are dealing with anxiety and depression as major issues when they're getting admitted to the hospital. So having processes in place where you're addressing both the medical reason they're admitted, but also psychiatric illness that they might be experiencing is really key. And then I think because a large portion of those patients did have autism or developmental delay or other behavioral diagnoses, I really ask ourselves, do we even have services in place on inpatient medical services to address that? I feel like increasingly you see inpatient teams will have psychiatric consulting services that will come by and provide support for kids with depression and anxiety. I'm not so sure if we have as many routine processes and practices around disruptive behaviors on medical floors or challenges dealing with those sorts of needs. I think that that's a place I'd like to see us think more creatively and maybe more intentionally rather than reactively. I think that's a great point. I don't think of this as the sort of study that's going to really change clinical practice at the bedside. It's not something you're going to pull up and say, oh, this is how we should address this problem. It's not that type of paper. I think the strength of this study is that it highlights a potential deficiency in the existing healthcare infrastructure, where we really just don't have the right solution for these patients. And we just wanted to put numbers to those findings to make it more objective, to really demonstrate something that 
I think a lot of people in the emergency department see on a regular basis that there is sort of this gap here for these patients with medical complexity and psychiatric issues that really has no good solution to date. So hopefully as we build more evidence to demonstrate what these types of conditions are and how often it happens, we'll be able to think more constructively about how to address these issues moving forward. I agree. This is a identifying the problem paper, bringing it to attention sort of paper, wanting to highlight that this is a population that though small has high need and maybe needs that we haven't yet highlighted sufficiently to date. Based on that, what do you think are the next steps from your work? So I think a deficiency with both of the data sets that we've looked at is that while they have amazing power in numbers, they're really primarily based off of administrative data. It's a lot of data science sort of approaches to identify patients with medical complexity and to identify patients with mental and behavioral health disorders. And I think that the definitions you use to identify these types of patients from large data sets are all somewhat flawed. They're useful to an extent, but they don't fully describe actual people. They describe kind of billing data. I think getting more objective evidence from using actual clinical data as compared to administrative data will be really helpful to better characterize the resource utilization among patients who have overlapping conditions. And then potentially describing actual outcome data, like what happens to these patients when they're admitted and what are the potential things that were missed or that were not optimally addressed during that patient's hospitalization to better highlight what's going wrong. Like, where is the system letting these patients down? I think that might be a next useful step to describe deficiencies that exist in the system that could be potentially addressed through better policy initiatives. Yeah, I think the only thing I would add to that, which I think maybe Ram, you even implied in your answer was, I suspect if we did some qualitative and survey-based research with people who are providing care currently in medical floors, we would find some untapped need to better support the way they care for this patient population when the patient population is admitted. I hypothesize we would come across experiences where they felt like they weren't able to provide optimal care. And by doing that sort of more in-depth qualitative work, we would really, I think, be able to start to target opportunities for the interventions and policy change that Rom's talking about. So, you know, I think we're basically talking about this is a paper that is a quantitative secondary data analysis, and we both think that you would follow this up with, you know, a paired qualitative work, survey-based or more clinical outcomes-based data set that gets at the other elements of information you need to be able to understand the situation better. I think if you were to do that type of qualitative research, you would really identify the frustration that clinicians encounter because you cannot possibly hope to fix the problem that you were not adequately trained for, which your facility was not set up for. And so you're trying to just kind of get through the day and you would like to fix this problem in as definitive manner as possible for this patient, but you may not feel like you're fully capable of it for a large number of reasons. So then it just becomes a matter of like, how can I get this patient through this acute illness and find them care somewhere else? Yeah, I think there's been an increase, especially more on the hospital-based medicine side of addressing mental health problems during hospitalizations. And I think there could be potential partnership with people doing that sort of scholarship around taking what they're doing and otherwise children who might have been admitted for acute illnesses or maybe don't reach the threshold of complex care, but using their kind of framework and applying it to this population in particular. With the potential frustration that providers feel and the system's frustration, what is your message for patients and their families from this? I suspect our message is nothing that they don't already know. I think as a parent or as a caregiver for a patient with medical complexity, you have to navigate your day-to-day life along with your child's very complex medical issues in a system that was never meant for them. And you are constantly struggling to find the best care among a set of sort of poor options. And so this is not a surprise to them. 
they already knew about this problem and they're probably really hoping that this can be addressed more definitively or more comprehensively than whatever we're doing right now. I also wonder if for parents who fall within this dual experience of complex medical needs and mental health, it may be, I don't know if it's reassuring or helpful for them to know that amongst the population of patients that a given physician might see, they are like less than one in a hundred. And not that that would make them feel good, but making them contextualize for them that like the doctors don't see this scenario that often, right? They're seeing it one out of a hundred times. And so you sadly are being put in a position like you're often put into where you're, you're almost educating the doctors who are caring for you in the ED in particular, that my child has dual needs. And because my child has these dual needs, can I partner with you to figure out the best place for them to go? I mean, this is not to put it on the families. It is a solution for the healthcare system to solve. But with the information we have now, I think from this paper, that that's a starting point. And then I would also just encourage them when there are opportunities to participate in research where you can help give feedback to researchers about what's working well, and what's not working well in your child's care. If you can take the time, take the time, because the only way we can try to build solutions to these sorts of problems is if we do hear from your experience, if you do participate and share your voice about what's working, and what's not. And so I would say participate in research studies when you can. Yeah, and I personally was interested in your paper because I'm currently leading some qualitative interviews with families on their perception of mental and behavioral health provided in the outpatient setting. And, you know, your large data set finding mirrors what families are saying too. And I find that a lot of families find it very frustrating, almost to a point where they feel like the diagnoses that are commonly used really don't describe what their child is going through. And the terminology that we use in the mental and behavioral health world isn't really reflective of what they're experiencing. And one of the things that caught my eye in your paper was the fact that of the diagnoses, the mental and behavioral health diagnoses that you looked at, there wasn't a behavioral disorder diagnosis. It was like autism or developmental delay. And it does make me think like, well, autism doesn't necessarily always present with behavioral concerns. I didn't know if you have any thoughts about that in the like the diagnosis that we use and how they might impact everything that is going on that you see in the ED. You know, I think that's fair. And certainly terms like autism spectrum disorder may not really fully characterize a patient's actual mental health condition or their state of developmental progression. And so nevertheless, these phrases get thrown into the one-liners of case presentations and when you describe patients in the documentation. So even prior to seeing the patient, you sort of framed the patient in this way, like, oh, this is what I'm expecting to see. And I can certainly imagine the frustration faced by parents when the physician clearly doesn't have have a good grasp of that person's child that they're seeing in front of them or that they've brought their preconceived notions about what to expect with this kid. And that frustration is surely felt by families. They see it every single time they bring their child to an acute care setting. And while you do your research in the outpatient world, it's probably magnified tenfold in the acute care setting because you're seeing an ED provider that has only had about 60 seconds to look through their note is meeting them for the first time and will probably never meet them again. And so they're trying to just kind of get the quickest snapshot of their child to triage them and effectively manage their problems without being able to really sit down and get to understand the depth of their problems and how serious they are. The labels that you're referring to in the manuscript, again, just points to the inherent flaws of data science. And as much as I adore data science, I think there's a clear flaw here in that you're really just applying existing rubrics, you know, batteries of diagnosis codes to identify different mental and behavioral health conditions. But we're not talking about people anymore. We're talking about, you know, rows in a chart. It's so far away from the actual person 
person that there's only so much you can really glean from it. So I think that sort of on the ground research, Dr. Foster talked about qualitative research among healthcare providers. You talked about qualitative research among caregivers and parents. I think that sort of information will be really informative to understand really where gaps are with respect to understanding where we're not understanding how to best care for these patients. The other thing I'll add is your point about the diagnoses not capturing what parents actually care about. I see that not just in behavioral health issues, but in broader issues for my patients with medical complexity as it relates to disability, like the needs to have equipment or a ramp put in their home. I think ultimately what I've learned over the course of my practicing of medicine so far and I've learned from families, like they've taught me this, is that I still think that how we're taught to think about health and illness in medicine is still too diagnosis focused. And I understand why, like, I understand why we're taught we need to be able to diagnose it to be able to treat it. Because if you don't know what it is, you can't identify a treatment. But I think our focus on diagnoses like autism or communication disorder, it's too focused on etiology for this population sometimes, and not enough on the outcome, which is the loss of function or the externalizing behavior that you're referring to. And so we actually start to lose track of what is actually mattering to the families and the actual phenotype of the patient, if that makes sense. And so I've really changed my practice and moved away from diagnosis and system-based care and focus much more on goals of care. It's much more meaningful for me to talk to a family about the fact that the kid isn't sleeping well, they're having externalizing behaviors, and they're having toileting issues than it is to talk about autism. We know it's there, but it's kind of so far in the background. And what Ram is pointing out is that healthcare is still billed and paid for through diagnoses. And so as long as that's one of the only primary sources of large data set data we have, we're kind of stuck with the diagnosis mindset. But I think one of the powers of doing qualitative and survey-based research with families and providers is we can choose to use a different mindset. We can choose to focus more on function. In this case, when I say function, it's both behavioral problems that get in the way of your daily life, right? And the challenges that families have with that, or it's your activities of daily living and sleeping through the night. That is what parents of children medical complexity care about. So you're right. And I would like to see more treatment and insurance. This is kind of getting a little far afield, but more of the insurance and medical necessity, appreciating that it's about the health and the function of the patient that we're focused on. Not that they have to have autism to get behavioral therapy. Like I have a patient who doesn't have autism, but desperately needs behavioral therapy because he has the same sort of externalizing behaviors that you would see in autism. And that functionally is what matters. And I should be able to explain that. So I think what you're describing experiencing with your patients is one I see not just for behavioral health, but also as it relates to disability to in a broader sense. This has been a wonderful conversation, and I'm wondering what you have changed in your clinical practice since you published your paper. I primarily do research. So I will say that Ram and I having done this paper gives me more ambition to do more papers about the intersection between mental health and complex medical needs. I mean, one of the reasons we even kind of got to this paper was because we appreciated that not all algorithms for complex medical needs include mental health. And so that was actually one of our strategic reasons for why we picked the algorithms we did. And that I think there needs to be more work done and looking at that intersection. And so I guess my daily practice, if part of my daily practice is research, then I think I anticipate or plan on doing more work in that area. And I think we could do a better job, again, not the ED, but I think we could do a better job in general with our children medical complexity of actually probably screening for mental health problems. I think we would do a really good job in primary care for teens. But if you want to think about prevention and the fact that these kids are showing up in the ED at all, like we could probably in our complex care programs be doing mental health screening. And I don't know if we're doing it. 
I think, you know, as I mentioned before, this is not the kind of paper you pull up when you're about to go see a patient to think about how to take care of them. So it's not so much about how it's changing the clinical practice, but I think the awareness is really helpful. You know, these are patients that when they come to the emergency department, there's this lingering feeling that everybody has that we're not doing the best thing for this patient. And I think that is something that we have all felt among those of us who work in the emergency department. Like, I'm doing the best thing for this asthmatic. I'm giving him steroids and albuterol. I feel good about that. I don't know if I'm doing the best thing for this patient with an outburst. And I don't really know how to do a better job than what I'm doing right now. I think by calling attention to that, this study, along with other research that will hopefully follow from this, will really support the need for more comprehensive solutions to better address the mental health needs of these medically complex patients. Thank you so much for your time today, Ram and Carolyn. And thank you to you and your team for advancing the field of complex care, especially in this very, very important intersection. And I want to thank our listeners for listening to the Complex Care Journal Club podcast today. We aim to highlight research that has the potential to be practice changing, that values patient and family engagement, and is relevant across all disciplines and diagnoses, and uses high quality or novel research methods. We invite you to join the conversation by suggesting an article that you would like to see discussed in this podcast by using our form provided on the Open Pediatrics YouTube channel. Thank you once again for joining us today. 